He says to them, now arise, move forward, gird up your loins. Let us go hence, let us press forward in the purpose and the plans of God and in the great work of the kingdom. You can sense why they'd be feeling so fearful and overwhelmed. But here is a word of exhortation and encouragement. And I'll bring out why it is. I read this and it quite struck me in the week and was an encouragement to me. And I trust it will be just as much encouragement to you. Because there's a note of confidence in here. And it's confidence that comes from certainty. See, when you're certain of something, you are very confident to move on in that venture or in that process. Certainty gives you confidence. And what the Lord has done in this so far in the evening, as recorded in this chapter 14, he has established them in three great certainties, absolute certainties you can rest in and rely on and act upon. The first one is in verse 3, I will come again. That's the certainty of his coming. And fellow believers, it's true, he's coming again and we shall actually see him in reality. And we will see him as he is, not as he was in his humiliation as a man amongst men, but in his splendor and in his glory and in the fullness of his power. It is an absolute certainty in the hope of the Christian. He's said it, I will come again, the certainty of his coming. Then if you go down to verse 11 and 12, he says there, particularly in verse 12, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believes on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. And he's saying, there's absolute certainty in the fact that the great work which I have begun in the bringing the kingdom of God into this world, that work will continue and you will see to it that the work of God, you will actually see it happen. The work of God will not stop. It will not be slowed by what Satan is doing in this very, very moment in this evil night. The certainty of his coming, the certainty that the work of God will continue in the world and then he says further here in verse 18, I will not leave you comfortless or as orphans. I will come to you. And this is the certainty of his ongoing presence. He will always be with them is what he's saying to them. As he would always be with us. And it's a certainty of his presence that he will make real to you. He says, I will reveal myself to you. I won't just tell you I am there, I will show you I am there. You will really know that he will never, never leave you. That's what he's saying. So he gives them these three great certainties. The certainty of his coming again, the certainty of the continuance of the work of God, and the certainty of his abiding presence. And in verse 27 he says, I'm going to leave you now with peace, my peace give I unto you because you can rest completely in these certainties. Now, he says, arise in the light of that. Let us go hence. Gird up your loins. Don't retreat. Press on. Move forward. Don't despair. The great program and work of God 
is going to continue. Now, they needed to hear that. For at this point, in their eyes, things are really changing, things are difficult. You know, their expectations, they've all been turned upside down and the Messiah, the King, is apparently not going to rule. He's actually going to die. I mean, it looks like Satan and Rome and evil and envy and unbelief and all of these dreadful things, it looks as though they're going to prevail. Everything seems to them to be so uncertain on this night of his betrayal. I mean, everything's changing and they're thinking, even their own faith and feelings are in turmoil. And they needed to be established in the certainties, in the eternal verities of God. Now, fellow Christian, we too are living in very uncertain times, aren't we? I mean, we're seeing everything changing around us at such a rapid rate. We're seeing the reversal of all the norms of society that we've grown accustomed to. We're being told apparently that history, you know, it just didn't happen, did it? I mean, truth is an absolute, well, it just doesn't exist, does it? Law, order, morality, the whole thing's being completely upended. And it is true that, that evil is starting to come in like a flood in a fresh wave. Darkness is starting to cover the land. I'm glad the light of the world is Jesus. <laughs> but darkness is covering the land, as it says in the prophecy, doesn't it? And gross darkness is covering the people. Now, in the light of the whole situation, he has said to them, as he would say to us this morning, arise, let us go hence, move onward, press forward in the great program of God. It will not fail. The work of God on earth will prevail. The presence of God with his people will remain unviolated and the coming of the Lord will never change. Never change. Never change. Arise. Let us therefore go hence. Now, when you read that initially, you sort of think, oh, well, at this stage he's saying to them, uh, let's get up and move out of the upper room and go on to the road to Gethsemane. Now, that's what many of the expositors will actually say is what is happening here. And then the Lord went out onto the street and then continued the discourse as he moved through the streets. Now, I've always been troubled by that because I thought, that doesn't really fit if you read it. Do you, do you really think they were walking along the street and the Lord unfolded to them the, the truths of I am the true vine, my father is the husbandman? Do you think he saved them those talk about loving one another as I have loved you and then told them all about the coming of the work of the Holy Spirit and all about the way of being a disciple would be one by which they would hate you, the world would persecute you. And then you really think that beautiful prayer in chapter 17, is a beautiful prayer. You're on sacred ground when you read chapter 17 and the Lord Jesus praying to his own father about the disciples and about us. You know, do you really think that was just sort of on the side of the road and... I think that holy and sacred prayer more fits that intimate atmosphere in the upper room as he is comforting and strengthening his disciples. And indeed, in chapter 18, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron. It was after that, you see. And not only that, you know, if you go to Matthew and Mark, it says they, they reached the end of the evening in the upper room and they sang a hymn. And then they went out into the Mount of Olives. 
And with those thoughts in my mind, it quite struck me, why then do we think that he left the upper room at the end of chapter 14 and went out into the street? It doesn't really fit, and it certainly doesn't fit. And then it dawned on me that what was going on here is he's exhorting them not to change their position or situation and to go out of the door into the street. He's actually exhorting them for a change in their thinking, a change in their whole attitude to what was going on. It's like, gird up the loins of your mind and be strong in the Lord and move forward into the great purposes and work of God that lies ahead. Now you understand the certainty that is not going to fail, that the program of God will climax in the glorious coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the service and work of God in this world of bringing souls to Christ to let them see that the light of the world is Jesus, that work will not fail. That no matter what Satan purposes and whatever he does, the gates of hell will never prevail against the programs of God. And what's more, you may see me die, but I tell you I will rise again and I will be with you until the end of the age. Nothing's hopeless. Never despair, fellow Christian. His presence is always with us and he will never, never leave us to face the foe alone, to tackle the task of the work of the kingdom of God alone. He will see to it that with the help that's divine, he will stand by our side. He will help us to stem the storm, to face the rising tide of evil and to look with hope and expectation at the glorious fact that the Lord Jesus Christ himself will come from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and our eyes shall actually see him. You see, the way in which he's done it is so beautiful. He establishes this certainty of everything that lies ahead. And fellow Christians, if we're going to live our life in the present, you'll only ever live it by looking ahead. And that's a fact. It's, you look beyond the present to what lies ahead because that's where our glory lies. That's where our home lies. That's where our future blessing lies. It lies up there in heaven ahead. And he's coming back to take us to himself. You see, he says... I am going to the Father's house. I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'll come again and I'll receive you to myself. That is the Christian hope. The reality of the Christian hope. That's the one thing that helps you and I to move on in the work of the Lord and in the face of our adversary, the devil, who goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And I tell you what, he'll trouble you. He'll cause you to despair. He'll make you look at all the wind and the waves that go around you. And he says, no, says the Lord, press on with that hope in your heart. I am coming again to receive you to myself. The scripture says that we have a sure and a certain hope. I love that, a sure and certain hope. And when you get that into your soul, uh, that he's going to do it, you'll find that you can move through every circumstance with a sense of quietness and of confidence. I love that word. I looked it up in Isaiah where the Lord said to Israel, in quietness and in confidence shall be your strength as you rest on the certainties of these eternal veracities. Verities. Rest on them. You see, Israel was in a situation where they were being attacked and they were going to be overwhelmed by the kings of the north 
And they were despairing as it were as a nation and they said, what shall we do? And foolishly, the king said, we'll go down to Egypt and we'll make a political alliance with the Egyptians and then we'll be stronger so that these fellows in the north, they won't come and obliterate us, attack us and annihilate us. And the Lord says, oh dear Israel, you never inquired at my mouth, did you? You got all agitated about the situation and you lent on your own understanding. He said, I tell you, if you'd have called on my name, I would have shown you that in quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. Fellow Christian, this morning, I don't know what's troubling you and I don't know what the devil's doing to you, but I'm sure he's doing something to somebody here because he never lets any of us alone for too long. <laughs> he's not a part-time worker, you know. The devil's a full-time worker, 24-7. I want to say this to you. Just rest in the Lord. Look beyond the trouble. He's coming again. We're going to see him face to face. Let this hope stir you up to peace and certainty and enable you to arise. You get it? And go forth in the strength of the Lord, in the certainty of the promise of his coming again. Hebrews 6 and 18 says that that hope that we have is sure and it's steadfast. Now, when you say sure, it means, I just looked up the meaning of the word, it just means it won't fail. It will not fail, our hope. And it is steadfast, it is firm, and it is stable. And so you see, the scripture is establishing us in, in absolute certainty. And he makes it clear that this hope, which is sure and steadfast, is fastened in the heart of God. It goes right within the veil, right into the very presence of God. And we have that hope as an anchor for our souls. It enables us in the strength and integrity of the faithfulness of God and in the power of a risen and glorified and ascended Christ to stow, to tread the pathway here below in the face of every evil, continuing to do the work of God, knowing that our labours are not in vain in the Lord, for he's coming very soon. And he makes it so clear that this whole thing doesn't rest on us. It actually rests on his word, it rests on his work, and it rests on his promise. Please, the future of the work of God and the purposes of God and the blessings of God and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation of souls, it doesn't rest on us. It is his, to do with his word, his work and his promise. It's not what we say, it's not what we do, it's not how we feel. Because if it did, if our hopes rested in that, in ourselves, they wouldn't be sure and they wouldn't be steadfast. See, he said, his word is, I go. Now, he's proved the truth of it because he left them and he went and he went into death and he went through death and then he rose again from the dead and then he ascended bodily and visibly into heaven. So you can rest on his word. He has already fulfilled so much of what he said he was going to do. And then he says, and I've got a work to do. I'm going up to heaven to make heaven ready for you. I go to prepare a place for you. You see, heaven must be made ready to receive forgiven sinners. He went to the cross to prepare sinners for their place in heaven. 
He died on the cross so that sin can be forgiven. Guilt can be removed. Souls can be washed whiter than the snow. And a dirty, vile, unrighteous sinner, clothed with the righteousness of Christ, is prepared for heaven. At the cross, he prepared the people for the place. Right? But he had to go to heaven to prepare the place for the people. Why? What was wrong with heaven? That we couldn't have gone straight away that we were saved. Well, you see, the trouble with heaven was that the door was shut. That was the trouble. And the second trouble with heaven is that there's never been a human being entering into heaven before. So the Lord Jesus, by his own sacrifice for sin, he went into heaven and the door of heaven opened. Oh, the door of heaven opened and it's stayed open ever since because a saviour's gone there with a sacrifice for my sin and he made me fit to go there because he forgave me my sin. He did. He gave me light to see who he really was and I am ready to go. And he says, I'm going to heaven to open that door so it's ready to receive you. And what's more, he said, I will take humanity into heaven. Mankind, humanity had never been in heaven before. It couldn't be there because it was fallen and sinful and barred and shut out. But the Lord Jesus, for the first time, as a man, he entered into heaven and he took their perfect, holy humanity. Now, this isn't innocent humanity, as in the Garden of Eden. This is holy humanity entering into heaven. This is not humanity that could sin again. This is, this is holy humanity that could never, ever be touched by sin ever at all. And he took that kind of humanity into heaven itself and the wonder of it is, fellow Christian, that he has made a way for all mankind to come. And when we go into that place that he's prepared, we'll go in with the good of a new humanity called glorified humanity, like unto his own humanity. And when we get there, we will be actually glorified. You see, we won't have a sinful nature. We won't have a body of weakness and sickness and flaws. Everything will be made new. And heaven's ready to receive a race that's like the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we see him, we shall be like him and we shall be with him where he is. Heaven is ready to receive the forgiven sinner because the door is open and he is there. And when we get there to the mansion in the skies, everything will be ready. An open door and a welcome and the very presence of the Lord himself. It's very beautiful, you know. This is our hope. This is what stirs us on in the face of every apparent, overwhelming threat. Up there in heaven, there is one who is God, but he's one who is man. A real man is in heaven, a glorified man. He is fully God, but he is fully man. This is the God-man. This is the mystery of godliness where you have Godhead and you have deity, I should say, and humanity. They are inexplicably, inseparably 
and inscrutably brought together in the blessed one, the Lord Jesus Christ ascended and glorified. Because he is God, uh, he can act on behalf of God and put his hand on the throne of God. And because he is man, he can act on behalf of man and put his hand on the likes of me as a sinner and open my eyes and make me anew and join me to himself and make me like himself so when I get to heaven, I'll be there at home with him forever with the Lord. These are wonderful things. This is the hope of the church. He's gone in there as our great forerunner, it says in Hebrews. You know, he's run ahead of us, as it were, because there's others following on. So we rest there. We've seen his word. He's fulfilled it. We're looking now at his work, and he has done it, and he's making it ready. And then he comes with that beautiful promise, and he says, I will come again. Right. So he's given us his word, and it's a God who cannot lie. He's confirmed it with an oath, it says in the Hebrew epistle, and he sets it in a promise. Remember Abraham? He said, Abraham and you and in your seed will all nations of the earth be blessed. He was including us, of course. The seed was Christ. And he would bless all people of the world. And then he says, having said that, I'll confirm my promise by an oath. And he couldn't swear by anybody greater, so he swore by himself. So you see, these things are set in eternal verities. That's where they're set. They're set in the heart and mind and unchanging character and person of God himself. And in the light of that, in the light of all of this, arise, let us go hence. Can you see now? This is a word of exhortation and great encouragement. Now look, it is essential that we just go back and keep thinking of what lies ahead and the coming of the Lord. Because if you go through history, church history, you'll find that the church has... When the church has got the hope of his return brightly shining before them, she has shone her brightest in her work and in her witness. Now, that is absolutely true. If you go through the periods of great revival of the church, you'll find the messages, but more than that, read the hymns that they wrote at that time. And constantly it was about the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Lord. We shall all see Jesus, that's it, and sing and shout the victory. But you can go right back through history, through the history of the church revivals, and you'll see that always came to the forefront. Now, you know, over recent decades, we're sort of losing a lot of that because, you know, it's all about me and it's all about the here and now. Have you ever thought about that? Everybody wants everything now. I remember... Uh, well, <clears throat> when I first started medicine, I, uh, a Jesuit priest came and gave us a lecture. <laughs> and I thought, oh, Jesuit priest, you know, this isn't going to be any good. I tell you what, he gave me some word of wisdom. <laughs> he really did. He said, you need to realize we live in the day of the movie. And he said, the movie lasts an hour and a half, and everything happens in a movie. You know, the poor get rich, the sick get better, <laughs> the sad get happy, marriages happen, Births happen, deaths happen, all in the space for an hour and a half. He said, that's a society that we're moulding. They want the here and now, and they think that that's how it happens, the here and now. Well, you see, and it's crept in a bit with us, like, you know, it's success now, isn't it? Eh? It's prosperity now, it's comfort now. And, and the sad thing is, in a way, as a group, we, we've really forgotten a little bit about who and what we are waiting for. 
You get that? Who and what we are waiting for. Look, I was only, I can remember when I was 17 and went and studied science at the uni. In those days, to get to uni, you know, we didn't have cars, there weren't too many of us too rich. You walked along Coronation Drive and you stuck your thumb up like this, you know, and your thumb to the right. <laughs> sure as eggs, they all stopped and picked you up. I mean, if you were a student and had a car, you never got to uni with an empty car. You just picked everybody up. I remember getting picked up one morning and had a chat to somebody, and somehow we got on to oh, sort of better things in life and a better way of living and sort of positive, nice things and just wondering where the conversation would go. And he says, oh, look, look, you must come and join our group at uni. He said, uh, we've got a really good movement going. He says, it, it, we do need a better society. You know, we need better morals and we need better this and better that. And it all sounded so good. And he said, come on, he said, John Varghese, Varghese, runs the group. He's still alive, he's a psychiatrist today. Good, good enough man, don't get me wrong. Noble ambitions for a better world. He said, that's what we want. We want it here and now, he said. You know, religion talks about it in the future. It's all pie in the sky. We want it now. Now, that's the attitude of the world. And I think, frankly, what began back there in the 70s and that kind of thinking has brought to where we are today, where everybody wants the here and the now. But no, the believer knows who they're waiting for. The believer knows what they're waiting for. The believer understands that we have here no continuing city. We are seeking a better country. That is a heavenly one. And God is not ashamed to be called our God. That's Hebrews chapter 11 I give you and the great worthies of the faith. The hope that we have within us, it purifies us even as he is pure. It helps us to get rid of all the things that spoil our faith, that hinder our growth in the knowledge and work of God, that helps us get rid of the filthiness of sin the filthiness of the society in which we live. Never stop purifying yourself. You get that? It's hard in today's world. Every kind of uncleanness is flung at you. The Christian lives their life purifying themselves because the Lord may come at that very moment before the day is even over. And he wants to be ready and clean with sin confessed, not unconfessed. And it says, the whole sense of the coming of the Lord purifies you, but it also spurs you on in the work of the Lord. There's much to do before he comes, fellow Christian. There's an old saying, isn't it? You, you face the day and you, with the hopes and expectations that he's coming right now, and then you turn and do the work as though he's not coming for a little while yet. You get the picture? That's the picture. And there is that in which there's coming a day in which we'll all stand before him and there'll be a day of review as well when he comes. He will look at you and he will look at me and he'll go over our lives and in his mercy and in his grace he will accord to us... This is a teaching of scripture and I find it very mysterious in a way. I don't profess to fully understand. But he says very clearly that he will review the life of the believer and in the light of our faithfulness on earth, here, so also will be accorded to us a place, our place of service and responsibility in the coming kingdom. That's true. All right? He reviews the judgment seat, the assessment. As he looks through and he sees. I mean, he gave you five talents and you made five more talents. He gave you two talents 
and you made two more talents. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. He gave you five talents, and you made two talents. He gave you two talents, and you made one talent. You see, it's not right. There's something missing. It's according to our faithfulness in service with the capacity that he has given us. Never wanting some, never want somebody else's capacity and to do somebody else's job that you're not fitted for with a talent or a, a capacity or a capability. Just you do what the Lord puts in front of you right there, here and now. And you'll find and discover that he put the job in front of you because he gave you the talent, the ability that you can actually do it. It mightn't be very prominent. That's good. It mightn't be very, you know, self-satisfying. That's fine. You're doing it for the Lord. He is seeing your faithfulness and he rewards in the day to come. And when he comes, he rewards according to the faithfulness in service with the task he set before you and the ability that he gave you. So you see... All the while you're purifying yourself in the sense of uncleanness, yes, but all those other things that would hinder you in the work of the Lord, you're laying aside <coughs> every weight. And the sin which does so easily entangle you, you're laying it aside because the Lord's coming and I'll stand before him and I'll have to give an account of my life and my work, my service and what I did. I think the best illustration I heard of it was again, I suppose I'd have been 21 at the time, but I remember a very an elderly man, and again he was Scottish, but he came and told us a story, as by way of illustration, of his own mother. And she used to be a weaver in the highlands of Scotland where they had their own sheep, and they would get the wool and they would spin it, and then they she would weave with it. Now, every home and every person in that generation had their own design, they had their own skills, they had their own dyes, and so on and so on. And she would weave cloth for a whole year. By the end of the year, she'd have quite a roll of beautiful cloth. Tweed would be probably what it was. And then at the end of the year, she would take it to the man who was the buyer of the tweeds or the cloth. And the man would take the roll and he'd unroll it, you know, yard by yard in those days, but we'll say meter by meter, and just run his eye up and down it like this. Just looking it up and down. Ah, that's, that's lovely. That's beautifully tight. Put a weaving there. Lovely balance. Oh, there, there's a blemish there. There's a little blemish. A little bit loose over here. Pattern's beautiful, but oh, just the colour's not quite right there. So on. So he got right to the end of the roll. Roll it back up and he'd give her a... He'd value it and give her the price for it. Now that's a bit like the Lord looking at our lives. He'll explain the reasons for things we never understood. He will show us what was done for his glory and for his name and the things that were perhaps done for our own self because we just wanted to be seen. <laughs> and he'll show us the little bits we missed out that he really wanted us to do. And he'll show us the things which we responded to in faithfulness. And there is a reward that is coming for every believer as they're given their place and responsibility in the coming kingdom of God. And this is the thing. The coming of the Lord that stirs us on in the work of the gospel to see the blessings of God come to sinners who are still outside of Christ. See, if you, you know the Lord's coming and you've got family not saved, you pray harder because he might come before the week's out. 
You've got folks you work with, friends that don't know the Saviour. You know, you feel more burdened as you get a sense of time. You see, time running out. Fellow Christians, give us, may God give us all hearts for those that are not saved, for people out there, not for just ourselves in here. Pardon if I speak strongly. We are in far too much danger of a cosy corner and not an outreaching mind and a love for the lost and for other people. The Lord's coming, you know. The Lord's coming. It'd be awful if I got to heaven and the Lord said, you know so-and-so? Yeah. I gave you three opportunities to speak to him and he was ready to hear. The Spirit of God had been working in his heart. You never said a word. Now, don't make any mistake. That soul won't be in hell because I didn't speak. You can't talk like that. It's not right. But I tell you what, he said, the Lord said, I, so-and-so did it instead of you. You get the idea. I'm just throwing out these things so to make us rethink the reality of the hope that lies in front of us and for us to arise, gird up your loins, and to go forward in the great work of God. Now, in verses 11 to 17, he establishes them in the next certainty. And he gives them every reason to go forward in the great work of the kingdom of God, as he gives to us. And the work that we're left to do is the very work that the Lord Jesus himself had been doing. And he says that in verse 10. He's saying, I've been speaking the words of God, and I've been doing the works of God. Right? Now, as the Father sent him into the world, even so has he sent us. He says that later on in the, in the evening. As the Father sent me into the world, even so send I you into the world. We are sent here into the world to do the works of God and to speak the words of God. Now, I want you to notice the certainty that he says in verse 12. And he says, the works that I do shall ye do also. And then he goes further and says... Greater works than these shall ye do, in verse 12. And it seems impossible that these 11 frightened men would ever do anything. But the truth is, they carried the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. And there was a far greater work that the Lord actually did when he was on earth, as he was confined to the regions of Jerusalem and Palestine and the land thereabouts. Now... He explains to them then the absolute certainty of why, number one, the work will continue, and number two, the work will grow. And that's really in verses 16 and 17, he introduces those truths as to why <coughs> and how, and how it's absolute certain, certain, and you can have complete confidence that this will happen. Because he says, the work is in the hands of the Holy Spirit of God. Now understand something. You must get this clear. It will give you courage and strength as I try to unpack it. The work of God currently in this world, right now, is not in our hands. Right? If it was, it would be pretty uncertain. It would. You would go forward with a fair bit of trepidation and wonder if there would ever be any success. The entire work is in the hands of God. And the work on earth at the moment is in the hands of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, that's the teaching of the Bible. We'll say more. Now, we can be and we should be part of that great work. 
We are not the ones empowering it. If the only power that the work of God has in the world today is the power that we've got naturally by energy or by oratory or by influence, then it's doomed to failure. No, we don't empower it. We don't actually instigate it. We don't sit down and say, well, now, how are we going to get this gospel to work, you know? Um, we'll have to get some scheme going or, uh, oh, dear, 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 where do we begin? Or where do... No, 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 that's not in our hands. We don't control it and we don't plan it. But we are used by him in his activity. See, the Holy Spirit has come from heaven as the Lord has gone back to heaven to oversee all that goes on and to rule in the kingdom and the affairs. So the Holy Spirit has come now down to earth to give effect to the work that he has done and to work in the world, the purposes of God, in the salvation of souls. We are part of that because it says in verse 17, he will be with us and he will be in us. And we, in that strength, right, under that direction, guidance, and tuition, we can be, and we are meant to be, workers together with God. See that? Not on your own. Workers together with God. He is the instigator, as it were, the great director of it all, the, the one who gives it meaning and power. We are workers together with him. That's why he says, arise, you go hence. He didn't say that at all. He says, let us go hence. He's going on yet to do more work on earth in the fulfillment of the purposes of God in the cross and in salvation. And he says, come with me, I need you. I need you. Peter, I'll need you to look after my earthly mother. Yes, I will. I need you to see that I die. I need that for my burial. I need you in the resurrection to be my witnesses and therefore with power to declare the truth of a risen saviour in all the world. You will have seen me die, buried, rise again from the dead. Let us go hence. And now in this today, the 21st century, you and I, he says, workers together with me. That's 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 1. Paul says, you know, he's a worker. He says, we're workers together with God. He says it in chapter 3 of the first epistle. And the Lord Jesus joins himself. Or should I say, he joins them with himself. Now, <clears throat> this whole idea that I'm trying to bring to you here the fact is it's in the hands of God, therefore it won't fail. It rests on the word of God, the work of God, the promises of God. It won't fail. It won't fail. It can't fail. It's not failed to this very point. We'll do that in a minute. And it won't fail from here on. Our role is to be helpers and to be under his direction and to be workers together with God. Now, you think of the Apostle Paul. You remember when he got saved? You know, the Lord appeared to him and he saw a great light. So he had his eyes open. He, he went blind after, but it was so bright. Okay. That's not the point. He saw who the Lord was and he said, Who art thou, Lord? That's quite profound, actually, because he bowed the knee straight away. Lord, who art thou? He said, I am Jesus whom you persecuted. Now, the next thing he said is, Lord, 
what will you have me to do? And the Lord says, you go into the city and it'll be shown you what to do. Meanwhile, Paul, you're going to be blind. You won't be able to see your own way and make your own path and build up your own ideas and have your own program. No, no, he said, it will be shown you what to do. Now, it's a bit sad that I've just read that and it's in the authorised version. A lot of the new versions, they miss out that whole section. It's missed out. The translators have just said, well, there's some of the original authorities say it is there, but more miss it out in their copying, so we think it's not there. I'm not really happy to accept any of that for the simple reason, you know, it's in some of the original copies. Now, I don't think they put in all that big verse and made it up, nor do I think they could have made it up. It so fits the context of a man that's suddenly seeing who the Lord is and who's had his whole life turned right upside down, stood on its head, and he's realised that he's, everything he's done has been wrong. And the Lord says to him, he'll show you what to do. I'll show you what to do. It'll be told you what to do. Now look, fellow Christian, you just live your life day by day. You will actually discover in a day what the Lord means you to do. Now that's true. Just, just start with a day, if you like, not just the great big grand scheme of things. And Where will I be in five years' time? And all that kind of talk, you know. What is your plan for what goals and setting that lay ahead of you? No, no, no. We'll just start with a day. And it's remarkable that the Lord will put something in front of you. When he does that, he means you to do it. That's very simple. But if a thing is in front of you, if you see a need, now whatever that need is, maybe for whatever that need is, maybe just to help, maybe just to speak, it may be for someone unexpected, it may be a situation that's unexpected, or it may be a, a massive task. But if he puts something in front of you, he means you to do it. You say, oh, but I couldn't possibly do that. I'll just stop it. He puts it there for you to do it. You will find as you just accept life as it comes to you with its various circumstances, and you do the task put in front of you, you will get enablement, enabling grace to do the task that he put in front of you. All right? That is how it works in the school of God. That's how you... Life is the school of God. You graduate every year, if you get what I mean. You go up to the next level. You hope you do, not fail. <laughs> but that's the whole process of growth and maturity. Now, I want to, I want to emphasize this. If you, some, if you see something that needs to be done... Stop, because the Lord probably means you to do it. That's why he gave you the ability to see that it needed to be done. You see, young people especially, you spend ages working out, well, what is my gifting? You know, I've got to find out what my gifting is. And then somehow or other you sort of hang your gifting round your neck and you do all the jobs that fit your gifting, but if that job over there doesn't fit my gifting, then I don't go and do it. That's all nonsense and rubbish and absolute balderdash, pardon me saying. It's not in the word of God at all. You put what the Lord gives you to do. You put you, what's put in front of you. You'll get the grace to do it and you will be finding that a gift will be developing within you. See, gifts come from above. They're from the hand of God to his servant. They're not something that we work up, right? But we are trained up by him to fulfill his purpose for us. 
in the work of God. So you see, we go forward in the strength of the Lord, not empowering, not instigating, not controlling. We understand that the Holy Spirit is the one who has control of the whole thing. The whole thing. Later on, he's going to tell them a little bit more that the Holy Spirit is the one in the world that's going to be convicting of sin, righteousness, judgment to come. You can't convict anybody of sin. Oh, no. That is the work of God and is the final action that brings a soul to its knees and makes him cry out, what must I do to be saved? Or you may be the one who pointed them to the verse in the Bible. You may be the one. Yes, that's right. But the actual work is not in our hands. It's in the hand of the Holy Spirit. And if that's not enough to give us certainty that the program, the great program of God, will continue to move forward in the world, if that's not enough, in verse 13, he makes it clear, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, that is in the context of doing the work of God. That's the context there. right? The works that I do shall ye do also, and greater works than these. So in the context of your service for God and your needs because of your own weakness and mine, you can ask for the strength you need in order to do the work that God has put in front of you to do, and you will receive it. So you've got the certainty established all over again. It was so important for them to grasp it at this stage that they were at. And so it is for us to grasp it and the stage that we are currently at to understand that the work of God on earth is in the hands of the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus ascended back to heaven having done his work on earth and sent the Holy Spirit down to continue the work of salvation and redemption. The work necessary for souls to be saved has been done. He's done it. The Holy Spirit then comes down into the world and using the witness of that work, right, he applies it to the souls of men and women, to blind minds he applies it and he opens and he gives light. And there comes glorious salvation. The whole thing is of God. There is absolute certainty. Our role is by our works and by our words. words. We speak the words of God. We are helpers in the work. The Holy Spirit then takes that and he uses that in the work of conviction to commence that glorious process that ultimately results in a soul's salvation. Fellow believers, let us arise and go forth. Stop. One little warning. Before you go public, and I don't mean get on the television set, you know, I don't mean that sort of, I just mean before you come out in your witness to other people, you be very, very sure that your personal life is right. You be very very sure it's God-honouring and God-glorifying. Now that is why in verse 15, after he's told them, one, that they're to do the work, after he's told them that they'll have access and strength in prayer, answered prayer, he suddenly says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Just make sure that your personal life, my personal life, is a life where we are 
loving him and keeping his commandment. All right? You must live an upright, righteous life. You must. You say, oh, I love the Lord. But do you know how you measure your love for the Lord? Do you know how actually, objectively, your love for the Lord is measured? It's not measured by all the nice fluffy things you say and the fluffy things I say or the fluffy feelings we have. It's actually just clearly measured by whether or not you keep his commandments. The extent to which you keep his commandments is the extent to which you love him. The Lord Jesus said, you know, that the world might know that I love the Father. As the Father has commanded me, even so I do, arise, let us go hence. He said, see, that's the measure. I'm going to prove my love for the Father by keeping his commandment. It's the same for us. Look, <clears throat> it's no use witnessing to your neighbour about sin and salvation if they can hear you fighting over the back fence every day. No use at all. Drunk on a Saturday night. Potty mouth. Dirty humour. Double dealing in business. Deceitful. Lying. You know, like everybody else. Don't think you can be fit to be used of God if in your life there's a secret hidden sin of uncleanness. Now it's not acceptable to live a secret life of sin. Purify me, says the psalmist. Purge me from secret sins. Pardon me, it's a scourge of the world and of the Christian faith and the Christian group. It's not acceptable. Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord because what will happen is, you know, your whole testimony just gets laughed at and laughed at. And I tell you, you can do work and you'll say, I'm doing it for the Lord and in the name of the Lord and in the coming day of review, it'll get burnt up. It says that, wood, hay and stubble, 1 Corinthians 3. When there's some things he'll assess and say, sorry, it was not done in my name and to my honour and I never even asked you to do it. And I tell you, you'll miss out on the will of God, you'll miss out on the, on the purposes of God for your life on a daily basis if you live a life of secret sin. This has been the bane of the church and it's done enormous damage to the voice and witness of the Christian church, especially in our day. You see, once upon a time, Christianity represented what? Decency, integrity, morality. Now, I tell you, average Joe Blow on the street out there laughs at that. Oh, well, what's your credentials? You know, well, what gives you credibility? Oh, I go to church. Oh, not another one of them hypocrites. You know, when we were small, there was an old joke, the parson's cloak used to hide a multitude of sins. Well, it's gone past the parson's cloak now. I'm sorry, but we have to face this very plainly. <clears throat> because personal lives have been exposed as being shameful. And in many ways, we have often caused the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme by the behaviour that we have shown when we're claiming to be the people of God. You see, the society in which we live unfortunately moulds our thinking far too much and the Babylon that we're living in, it is true, it has invaded our thinking and our sense of values. It's all about wealth and ease and indulgence and comfort and uncleanness and passion and greed. And the consequence is that, you know, it's there in our thinking and our own personal lives are not the witness that they ought to be. And the church has unfortunately grown to be that that great tree. You remember the parable of the kingdom in Matthew 13? The kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like 
And he says it's like something that's had evil leaven put in it, and it goes right through it. And it's like a little mustard seed, he says. It's, it's, it's the least of all seeds. It's such a tiny thing. You see, but you plant it and it, it grows and it, it is what it is. It's a mustard seed and it gives mustard plant. But he said, what will happen when I'm gone? It'll grow into a great tree, um, a something that that seed actually was never meant to be. It'll be so big and so powerful and so showy and such a monstrosity, the birds of the air will roost in its branches. And you say, isn't that lovely? Kingdom of God is growing to be such a witness that's going to fill all the world and be such a refuge for everybody flying around. That's not the picture. That seed grew to be something that it was never meant to be, Right? And the birds of the air roosting in its branches is a bad sign because that's exactly what happens in Babylon. In Revelation chapter 18, it becomes the hold of every foul spirit and the cage of every unclean and every hateful bird. Don't let's be part of that. See, our daily life, your daily life, how you live before people, <clears throat> that's a huge part of your actual work and your witness in the world. I mean, your own personal integrity your honesty, your morality, the way you treat others, just your kindness, generosity, courtesy, the way a, a husband treats his wife, the way a wife looks at her husband, treats her husband, the way you care for your family. Do you know what? If you, if you have a Christian home, you'll find it's an incredible witness in the present world that we live in, an incredible witness. You'll find people coming into your home and asking you who you are. What's this thing? What do you believe? It's a light shining. And you know, you go, see, we're salt and we're light. And what we are in our character and general behavior, it's a huge witness in the world. Don't spoil it by sin. That's what I'm trying to say. Don't. Don't. Can I plead with anyone with a secret sin here this morning? Get it out of your life. Get on your knees before God and just confess it and forsake it. Don't. Play with it. You go to work, you live in the corporate world, and I tell you, you only need to talk to those who work in the corporate world how bad it is. Just be what you are. That's a light in the world. You go and work in the public service. I used to think the public service was safer than the corporate world. Rubbish. It's the most woke place you could ever be. And if you take on the thinking of the, oh dear, of the public service, well, pity help us all. <coughs> There'll never be any use in the kingdom of God because you never get anything done anyway. But that's by the by. But you see, the whole thinking of the world, you be there and you be what you are, and that light shines. And what happens is, as you live in whatever environment you're in, in the home life, in the work life, whatever, your life is a life of service, humility, purity, righteousness. Men will actually see your upright works. It says, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And you will understand there's certainty in all of this, your labour won't be in vain in the Lord. We've got a certain hope, fellow Christian, the coming of the Lord. We have certainty in our service and our work in the kingdom of God. And we've got absolutely certainty that as we go forward, he will never leave us nor forsake us. Don't ever doubt for one minute you will ever be left on your own. Read John 14, verses 18 to 24. And read what he says, I will manifest myself to you. I will make my presence real to you. And aren't those moments in our life and in our day when you really feel the sense of the presence of the Lord? He's really there. He's really there. Covered that. 
get rid of sin out of your life. Let's get laziness out of our life. Let's just go on in the work of the Lord. Let's fix our eye on heaven and on home and see the glory as the lie ahead and say our labour is not in vain in the Lord. For if God be for us, who can be against us? Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, there are mighty truths that we have meditated on this morning. Humbly we pray to make us into the men and women that we really ought to be and to show forth in our lives of gratitude and service that we really do believe the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That our eyes have been opened to see wonderful things. And this morning for every glimpse of our Lord Jesus Christ, O oh Lord we give you our thanks together. So encourage us all and move us on in the work and in the service and in the waiting for our Lord Jesus Christ to come from heaven once again and unto him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Saviour, be honour and glory forever. Amen.